I'm Stephen Foskett. This is the On-Premise IT Roundtable Podcast. Today we're in Boston, Massachusetts for Tech Field Day number 14. And uh, one of the things that came up, well, it was kind of an interesting question that was relevant to some of the people in the room. So I'm actually going to hand it over to Michael Stancliffe to ask the question. And then those of us over here can, uh, well, hopefully provide a little bit of answers. So uh, what was it that we were talking about a few minutes ago, Michael? We were talking about how cloud and managed services in the 90s to now, how how big of a pr- how 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 bad things were <laughs> in the 90s, basically. Um, so I guess my first question would be: uh, Did you know what you were selling at the time wasn't going to work? <laughs> <laughs> wow, he's just coming right at us. You know, we actually made it all up. Is what happened, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, that's pretty much what it came down to, right? You know, there was a lot of stuff that we thought we could make work. Things like today, chef, puppet, automation didn't exist back then. Mm-hmm. We were just pretty much making it all up. That's not about Yeah, we had to use expect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bash, yep. right? a lot of bash. Yeah, a lot of shell scripting. Yep. Yeah, so it turns out that, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, we actually worked together at Storage Networks. And so what, what, we, where you're, what you're getting at there was, um, you know, around 1999, um, somebody came up with this idea that you could have, like, a uh, basically storage in a data center remote from the uh, data center that the compute lives in. What? And it seemed like a good idea, you know. We but we figured out that the, we figured that the networking guys had it covered. But it turns out that these guys who were the networking guys, well, maybe they didn't. Um, you know what? That's what? Why, that's he's going to blame me. Right. Uh, exactly. Yeah. It's all your fault. <laughs> it's those telcos. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, what did? How did you guys react when you heard about this idea that you would have uh, basically metro fiber uh, with managed services? <laughs> Well, so it, you know, there's there's still a lot of baggage from uh, from, from 1999 because it was a huge telecom bubble, and and you know, to, to people's estimation, there was none of this stuff ever got built. I mean, it, you know, it all just went quiet. Um, but you know, at the time in 1999, uh, I think there were a few select cities where you had fiber, you had reasonable connectivity, and then uh, in the preponderance of the locations in the world were dark, right? You, you got uh, internet connectivity from, you know, your phone line. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was 1999, and if you wanted private connectivity, you had, you know, basically conglomerations of telephone lines. I, you, you'll yeah. remember this, right? ISDN. Yeah, so you had ISDN, you had uh, you know, fractional T1, yeah. and then you had T1, and then T3, I mean, it was it was basically telephone lines, and I, and I don't think if people I don't think people today. I mean, they throw around words like T one and T three, but I don't think they understand exactly what that was. That was telephone. Yeah, that, that was, was yeah. a bundle of phone lines. Yeah. That's oh. what that was. Oh. So, so a T one line will be made up of twenty four channels, which you would get a fractional fraction of, and you could literally buy any number of pairs for a fraction of the cost of a full T1, and that's where kind of frac T1 came from. And that's where but, all the bandwidth numbers came from, too. Yep. I, mean, I think people wonder, like, like why 1.54? I mean, where, where did this number come from? So in, it, back then, it was the big telcos, like you said, where today we're dealing with kind of the cable uh, uh, ISPs, in a sense. But no, back then it all rode over the little copper pair phone lines. Uh, and even to an extent, the long-haul lines still do today, the ones that haven't moved to fiber, uh, at least from a metro perspective. Um, but yeah, back then it was, you know, you still had to punch down at the D mark. You still had to do all that stuff that you do with with phone lines. But now you just screw a coax cable in or a mm-hmm. 10 gig Ethernet line in, and you're done. 
Yeah, and I, well, what you mentioned there too is important, and that's so. I was in in Houston for the beginning of Storage Networks. That's where I was hired, and and that's what I was working on. And the reason Storage Networks worked in Houston, back to the did we know it wasn't going to work? Well, we knew it was going to work, <laughs> but we knew it was only going to work in Houston. And um, the reason was because in Houston there was this uh, cable TV provider called Phonoscope, and they ran fiber all over the city. And their idea was basically instead of using coax, they were going to be a cable TV company that would go over fiber. And because of the unique nature of Houston, which is no zoning and you can dig up anything anywhere you want, they ran fiber all over the city. And so we literally located storage networks in the Phonoscope building, which was in a horrible part of the town, so that we could leverage all that fiber. But we kind of knew at the time, we better hope that there's more fiber like this in some other city because it's not going to work without it. Yep. You know, and a lot of that had to do with. Sorry, go ahead. No, oh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. A lot of that had to do with the way. The, I, there's two main reasons that I go back that I constantly remember in my memory banks of why we were doing those certain things from an infrastructure perspective. One of them was to green screen back to a mainframe that was in a central location right. from remote offices yeah. and remote workers and things like that, which today we would refer to as something like VDI or something along those lines, right? That sounds like the cloud. Because 2017 is going to be the year of EDI, right? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The other one was, uh, which I kind of equate weirdly to social media. You know, a lot of corporations today, they know they need a Twitter account, but they don't know exactly why they need it. Well, back in, like, Y2K, everybody needed a website. They didn't really know they needed a website, but... And, and to me, that's, they didn't know why they needed it, but they knew they needed to have one. So these kind of managed hosting sort of places started to spring up to, we'll build your website for you kind of thing. And that was really all that they were used for in that sense. Yeah, and then you had this idea of time-sharing equipment, right? Yeah. You know, that's really what this all kind of came down to, right? You know, IBM with the mainframe, you know, had this concept, and that worked pretty well for a lot of areas. And then companies like Storage Network, Storeway, Storeability, and 10 million other service providers all said, I'll take that and do it with open compute and Windows and, you know, yeah, VMware. There was, of course, when you say was open no multi-tenancy. Yeah. And so so, so well, I, I, I want, I, I, you would you'd set up a Symmetrics for, right. for, for right. me. You know, right. And that, that, so, so and it's all mine. And you'd rent it back to me. So huh? there's no service provider economics there. I mean, in terms of multi-tenancy, you're just basically giving me all that unused capacity and... I just rented from you. So actually, we thought about it. I didn't say it actually worked. Right? You know, that's back to his question: Why it failed? Right? You know. Well, even the universities, like Rutgers and places like that, were running the 970 mainframes and time sharing them. Yeah. Out yeah. for for research and stuff like that. So I mean, you know, mid to late 90s, that was kind of. Well, you could the do hot that thing. with a you could do that with a mainframe. Yeah. It turns out, but you can't do it with storage, or you couldn't. Well, you and, could. And, well, you and, couldn't until well, they broke out the RS 6000s and started putting them locally and, and yeah, you know right, stuff like right, that. Right. Right. And yeah. then you had p- companies like you know the more modern companies said, well, we're actually going to build this thing called multi-tenancy and yeah. actually put it in there. And right about then, the whole dot-bomb era happened. And all these companies who, you know, like <laughs> PetFood.com, I don't know yeah. if you remember them. Right? Yeah. You know, Pets.com. Yeah. Pets.com. Pets.com, right, you know. It was, uh, well, yeah. so I, I lived yep. the other side of that, right, because I, you know, the, the, you know, behind every gold rush is a guy that's selling shovels and picks. <laughs> yeah. um, and we were making a ton of money sell, selling yeah. essentially the, the switches and routers that that you know, were, were basically being used by, all, you know, Pets.com and everybody else. And you know, th- there was this secondary bust yep. from telecom. So, you know, the, the, the telecom vendors all had over-leveraged themselves. They just fell apart. And then they stopped buying stuff. And then there were the telecom equipment vendors yeah. that suddenly had lost all their customers. And, you know, the whole thing just, just disappeared. And so the only one survived is Cisco. 
and yep. Cisco. And there was only Cisco. Juniper. I think they, yeah. Well, Juniper did survive, actually. That's true. But they were in a different market. I mean, they, they, they never really got... Yeah. Checkpoint, I would bomb. say, is another yeah. survivor of HP. that era. Yeah. HP survived, right? Yeah. HP survived. You know, but all the managed service providers had the same problem, right? Yeah. But they why did all... they survive, though? Because they bought Compaq. Well, Compaq was the market share leader right. in servers that's at right. the time. Yeah. That's yeah. right. So know? I think that's the only way they really survived through that, was they bought the white pizza box servers. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, what, so what really went wrong then? That's, I guess, the question. So we talked about, um, about bandwidth, but mm -hmm. I think where you're getting at here with the whole time-sharing thing, <laughs> which is now called multi-tenancy. Yeah. Um, or the cloud. It was multi-tenancy that was a big problem. Yeah. I mean, because originally the plan was to share some metrics. Mm -hmm. But yep, it then it didn't work because of the fact that Symmetrics wasn't engineered to be shared. Yep. And so basically, I raised my hand at the time, and you <laughs> were on the other end of that discussion. Two of us. And, I, yep. and we were saying, basically, wait a second, you can't share a Symmetrics because anyone can have access to anyone's data. Right. Yeah. Right. And so we tried every other storage vendor out there, and lo and behold, they all had the same problem. Yeah. Right. Because so there was really no inbox like, no. firewall no. possible. No, and so you know we had we were actually making money, or we were getting money. I don't know how much money we we're actually making at that point in time, right? But uh, then when all of our customers, you know, about a third of them disappeared in the dot bomb era. This is that secondary effect you were talking about earlier, right? You know, it just vanished. We didn't have enough runway to get to the point where now there is true multi-tenancy, and there's things like encryption and security and dedupe and compression and. All of those technologies make things economically viable in the cloud and other things. Yeah, but I think you guys actually, there's another point that you guys miss, and that is people's uh, own predispositions. Uh, you know, the, the big there problem, so, so your customers at Storage Networks were predominantly the dot-coms, and they had a different way of thinking about things. And, you know, today, even today, we, we run into enterprise customers that are, are, you know, very, very reticent to let things go outside their four walls. Mm -hmm. you, you see that all the sure. time. Yep. You know, but by and large, it's a mainstream idea that, yeah, I can put my data outside of my firewall, I can run these yeah. things outside. Of my, you know, in, in 1999, you, know, you had, I believe, this sort of, you know, sort of glass ceiling uh, above that market that you could never get through because the mass market would never approve of outsourcing these types of services. I think you, you, ha you don't have that, by and large, today. And that's happened over a period of, you know, 10 years. Mm -hmm. And it's happened because cloud providers uh, are available and the economics of the, the cloud made it easy for a low-end market to, to form there. Um, so what kind yeah. of... Well, first of all, I'd ask, to, to piggyback on the, you know, why, how did you know it wasn't going to work? I guess, what did work? What, what were some success stories that you had as a result of some of the things you were doing at the time. So that question kind of ties back to what you were saying about not being able to secure uh, a storage system. And I would say that that was one of the things that led us to the siloed client server era of the 2000s before we had virtualization. Yeah. You had a server, you had an application, let's say Microsoft Exchange, and it had its own servers, its own storage, its own backup software, its own stuff, and it lived in that, and it had a team of guys or girls that managed that stack. And it was extremely siloed, and it was very specialized. And you know, you had Clarions, you had the Symmetrixes, yep. you had all of that stuff, right? And I think it's funny how things come full circle now, where we went from managed hosting to siloed to virtualization. Now we're back to cloud, and something like ClearSky is a great example of this kind of um, you know, metro architecture, in a sense, where everything is kind of shared, but it's all controlled centrally like that. So it's funny to me how the the, <laughs> the wheel just continues to churn, uh, and we go through these phases of IT, but. Are we going to get to a point again where the metro stuff doesn't work, and we're going to we're going to get so fearful 
and uh, and paranoid, I guess is the word I want to use, that we go back to these siloed kind of security or secure architectures. Well, there's a lot of worry about, you know, things like, you know, hacking and people breaking yeah. into networks and, yep. you know, ransomware and all those kind of things. If that continues to progress, that might lead to people saying, you know what, those four walls, I can put a person around that and yep. guard my data, you know. So it may happen to go back that way. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of trends that, you know, could lead towards that, but that certainly could happen. Yeah. And, of course, yeah. then there's the, also the mega trend um, that we're seeing, you know, here in 2017, which is the nationalization or nationalism yeah. trend. And that was a problem in 1999, and it remains a problem today. So I guess that's not an answer to what worked. That's an answer maybe to what we learned that isn't going to work and didn't work is you know you can't bust through national walls and national borders because of laws and data protection and things like that. Well, the, the, there will always be uh, a data sovereignty problem because different people view their privacy in different ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. this, yep. this millennial guy over here, you know, I'm, I'm sure he'll <laughs> <laughs> post everything about himself on like Snapchat, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, Laz, I love that you brought that up in your presentation because that was something that you know global larger companies deal with different customers in the data sovereignty, and some European countries just innately gives the government rights to see to all that data regardless right yeah. and that is that is a big problem where uh, and I, that would lead back to a siloing mm -hmm. thing where companies maybe doesn't want to host their stuff in the cloud and oh. it'll influence decisions about how that stuff gets spread around and the it's, world it's really funny um uh, germany i didn't realize this uh, until i was sp speaking to a german carrier um you know the the, the azure cloud is run by a german telco yeah mm -hmm. and and it has to be that way otherwise no one will trust it mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and you just had China pass a law that all encryption keys, same with Russia as well, that all, anything encrypted, the government has to have a copy of the encryption keys, yep. right? So anything anywhere in the country. So you start having something like that, all of a sudden, the company's going to go, wait a minute here. Right? You know, those four walls, I can keep it within the four walls. At least I know who has access to it. So we've identified something that didn't work then and won't work now. Yep. But what, in answer so to his question, problem. what did it's work? It's a people problem. <laughs> it's a people problem, well, right? Yeah, and, and what, you know, what other lessons <laughs> you learned in the in the 90s do you carry forward to now you're talking about you know watching the circle of circle mm -hmm. of life of sort of you know moving from terminals and then now VDIs you know I, I think the idea of mainframes and shared <laughs> yes. resources yes. it's were, it's back it yeah. came back Never virtualization left. <laughs> in a big way yeah. um, but then we got into the the micro of managing resources discrete resources across those things and that made us scale out more instead of scaling up in like a big mainframe would yeah. So I, I, I think we've gotten back to that point, but we're starting to stretch out again mm -hmm. uh, where things scale. So that's something I would say that we, we kind of learned to do well with using mainframes in the late 90s yeah. um, was virtualization kind of came from that. Something else that actually was really interesting and is still true today is about disaster recovery, right? You know, the concepts of disaster recovery are more or less the same as yeah. what they were. You know, it's tell me what you're trying to protect against. Right, and then you start developing a plan towards that. But if you, when you talk to customers today, even people that have been around for quite a while, there's still a very high reticence to implement it because of the cost. That hasn't changed, but what we have learned is that the methodologies are pretty solid. Right, so the way to protect your disaster, the way to protect your data against disaster, that worked pretty well. Well, you know, there, there are different approaches to it. So the, the cloudies will tell you that, mm -hmm. um, that, that the uh, legacy systems, although they're disaster tolerant, they're brittle. Um, mm -hmm. And you know you you you're not thinking about things the right way, and uh, you know so some of the methodologies are not the same. And um, but you know but I, I failed sometimes to see 
that you know that they're that different from one another. But well, you know, well, hold on a second. Yeah. It's still make multiple copies, geographically disperse <laughs> yes, them, put, put them, them put somewhere them, else. Exactly. It's the exact same thing. There's no difference. The difference is, is, oh, I call it different availability zones and different. It's the same damn thing. Well, put it physically yeah. somewhere else. I would say that the orchestration of a DR plan has changed That's dramatically, the but the fundamentals of what makes mm -hmm. up DR are, are, are kind of the same. I. I used to get paid a lot of money to get to build a note three ring binder of a run book, <laughs> and I used to jokingly call it the admin gets hit by a bus book. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and here it is, step by step, literally of of commands to execute and where the data is going to be and all that stuff. Well, now we have something like um, uh, SRM for VMware, or yep. you know, a solution like you guys are doing that's kind of an edge metro solution using leveraging the cloud. I mean, stuff like that, I think the orchestration has changed. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the underlying fundamentals of multiple copies, offline yep. data, all that stuff, it remains the same, yeah. And I, well, I guess to, to wrap up in terms of what, what I learned from, from that work and, and trying to architect the, you know, disaster recovery systems uh, was that you, you can't have it be an occasional thing. It has to be kind of like a, it has to be constantly exercised yeah. and it has to be constantly on because we had uh, huge issues with incompatibilities of drivers and, mm -hmm. you know, systems. And, you know, the joke back then was basically, yeah, that's nice. We can come up with a DR plan, but step one is going to be I quit because there's no way any of it's going to work. I mean, <laughs> we, we all knew that it wasn't going to work. And, um, and because it just was not possible to work because step one was buy a lot of servers. And they have to be exactly yeah. identical to the ones we used to have yep. in every possible way, right down yep. to the firmware revisions. And then we have to do everything else, right? And, and, and I think that that's one reason that we all went crazy for virtualization because it made a standard hardware base. And so step one, instead of buy a bunch of identical servers, it was basically spin up something that can run these virtual identical servers. And that actually made DR possible where it was never possible before. And, and it's the same you know, with cloud computing. I think we're kind of learning the second lesson, which is, like I said, you can't have DR be something you never actually do. Yeah. It has to be something that's always exercised. And yeah. so I think that like, you know, today's uh, outages and so on, the only way to deal with them is to have systems that are continually up and running. You, know, you have to have like, dual home systems. You have to use you know, multiple regions of AWS or something like that, because otherwise... You, you can't wait until it fails before you start moving it over somewhere else. Yep. It has to be yep. running in two places in order for it to be successful. Not 100%, not necessarily. So okay. that, the, it, I think to the point of exercising the muscle, uh, if you're under if SOX compliance mm -hmm. or healthcare or any kind of public company, you're going to have to exercise that muscle. There's going to be auditors that show up a couple times a year to make sure you're exercising that muscle successfully. Um, but one of the funny things that I remember about you know tape specifically is we, one of the big healthcare companies that I worked for. We used to sh store a tape drive, even go all the way going back to like a big parallel interface or a SCSI interface with ten-year-old, twelve-year-old tapes, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because we were always concerned that we wouldn't be able to find one of those old DLT tape drives uh, if we needed to restore some really old data for some reason, and we'd have to go pull it out, plug it into an old-ass server, and put a tape in it and make sure that we could get that data out. I mean, and that's when we learned that we have to keep things yep. fresh right. yep. and alive. But you also learned the tape degrades. That was an interesting thing over time that a lot of people don't realize. Hey, I've been backing up for 10 or 15 years of tape. Well, if you haven't tried to restore that, that tape's been sitting in Iron Mountain for 10 years. A <laughs> third of it's probably gone. Yeah. Right? You know, so you have to, like, just do those things regularly. Well, we uh, we got to wrap it up because that's about as long as we've got for this uh, podcast. Thank you for uh, guys for joining me here on premises. 
for the <laughs> on-premise <laughs> IT Roundtable podcast. It's and, a fun uh, trip down memory lane. Oh, yeah. Yep, yeah. Fun trip down memory lane, exactly. We were back in the old premises. Yeah, um, we were. Premises. So we, uh, we will be back in next Tuesday with another episode of the On-Premise IT Roundtable. Uh, check us out on YouTube uh, in Gestalt IT. Otherwise, go to gestaltit.com slash podcast or search for the On-Premise IT Roundtable in your favorite uh, podcast application. <laughs>